Well, brothers and sisters, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. And uh, let's continue in prayer as we uh, come to this passage. Almighty God, you alone can order the unruly wills and passions of sinful people. Grant to your people that we may love what you command and desire what you promise. That so among the many and varied changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to chapter 4, verse 5. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Well, maybe you've seen the British sitcom The IT Crowd. Uh, one reason I enjoy watching it is because it helps me to be thankful for the patience and the competence of our own IT team here at college, who have actually just helped uh, to make chapel work for us even this morning in the last few minutes. But in the sitcom, in one scene, the IT crowd are sitting in their basement office. They've rigged up a, a retro reel-to-reel tape player to use as an answering machine for their IT helpline. And when anybody from the organisation calls their helpline, the tape player starts up. Hello, IT. It stops. It waits for the person in the organisation to describe their problem. It starts up again. Have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> Stop. Is it definitely plugged in? <laughs> Stop. You're welcome, then. <laughs> Stop. When Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, there was a spirituality going on in Ephesus that wasn't plugged in. Paul has told Timothy in chapter 1 to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach differently and so devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. See, these false teachers had a problem. They had a Bible problem. It's not that they rejected the Bible. No, that they saw themselves as Bible teachers. They, they were law teachers. But their problem is what they did with the Bible. They used the Bible as the basis for speculations, discussions. They had lots of spiritual words, but their spiritual words weren't plugged in. They weren't plugged into life, life on the ground, life in God's good creation. They didn't promote what Paul calls stewardship, household management. They didn't take God's word and live it out in good, ordered daily lives and relationships. 
In fact, their spiritual teaching did the opposite. It led to arguments and fights and greed and worse. It pulled people away from that focus on daily godliness. And this problem, this unplugged spirituality, is in Paul's sight here. That here, Paul helps Timothy to see big problems with this unplugged spirituality and gives some good answers to it. And I pray that, that Paul's letter will help us to see today how it could be a problem for us too, to see the good answers that Paul gives and some concrete ways to overcome it. I've got three points for today uh, up on the screen. Firstly, the truth of the gospel must be lived out in concrete daily relationships. Secondly, Jesus and the gospel of glory don't bypass God's world. And thirdly, God's creation is good and not to be rejected. So firstly, the truth of the gospel must be lived out in concrete daily relationships, verses 14 and 15. At this point, Paul reminds Timothy about the reason he's writing. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, Paul wants Timothy here to see the connection between daily life and church and gospel truth. He returns again to the idea of the household. He's already described ministry as a stewardship, sort of household management in chapter 1. And here... Paul describes the church itself as a household. Now, I'm sure that you know that literally the, the word church means gathering, uh, because church is fundamentally about gathering, gathering around God's word. And that matters because that puts the focus on, of church on hearing and responding to God's word. God's word, the, the truth, it defines the church. And as Paul says elsewhere, the preached gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church as we gather around that word. But that's not Paul's precise focus here. Here Paul extends the image to make another a very important point, a point that we need to remember about the relationship between the church and God's word. Here Paul says that church is about behaviour in a household. This image of a, of a household puts the focus on Relationships. And, and by relationships, I don't mean the fuzzy feelings of, friend, of friendship by themselves. I mean concrete relationships, good relationships with, with good order, which involve good behaviour, right conduct, respect, godliness, love, the kind of thing that Paul spells out in the rest of 1 Timothy. The church is a household. And then Paul shifts the image slightly, as he does, <laughs> to architecture. Church is like a pillar, a buttress of, of, of truth. These good relationships and good behaviour, they're like supporting structures for gospel truth. Paul's not saying that the church defines gospel truth, but he's saying that the church is the place where that gospel truth works out, becomes concrete, it is supported in that way. So just as, as the gospel word is the foundation of our church gatherings, so our church relationships and behaviour support the truth. They're the place where the gospel word becomes concrete. And that is why, why church and, and community can't be an optional extra for Christians. These relationships are the place where the living God does his thing through his word. The truth of the gospel is, is not just happening in some heavenly spiritual realm up there that, detached from the world. No, the truth works itself out in our concrete daily relationships through good behaviour and the daily grind. 
You see it in different ways for older and younger and men and women and children, etc. You see that in 1 Timothy. This is where the action is at. And so church, it's not just some only one-off event where God's word is preached and then nothing happens. No, it's a household where God's powerful word plugs in to our otherwise dead and worthless lives. It changes how we live and how we relate. And of course, that's why here at college, chapel and, and community are so vital and central to who we are and what we do. Well, then Paul broadens his horizons beyond the church. Verse 16, to say here, Jesus and the gospel of glory, they don't bypass God's world. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, this is, this is a confession about Jesus Christ. Presumably, it was well known and widely beyond uh, this particular letter. But here, Paul uses that confession to make a point. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't bypass God's world. The gospel is not some esoteric mystery that removes us from God's world. It's not the, it's not the mystery of mysteriousness, you see. It's the mystery of godliness. It's about concrete devotion to God. And life in this world, the gospel, Jesus himself are connected to God's world. And so Paul says, Jesus comes to God's world. Remember who Jesus is from chapter 2? He's one mediator between God and humanity, the human being, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes in the flesh, dies for our sins, and the gospel goes out into God's world. And through faith in that gospel, Jesus brings us through. God's world to glory and there's a movement in this confession a movement from the earthly to the heavenly from flesh to spirit to angels to the from the nations to the world to glory Jesus and his grace and his gospel word works in and through God's world in the flesh among the nations this wonderful truth of our salvation about Jesus it's not some free floating spiritual or angelic mystery beyond the heavens it's not a myth it's not a speculation it's only available to certain people with inside knowledge. Now it's concrete, it's public, it's available, it's with us in this world and that's why we follow Jesus to glory through this earthly life. Not by escaping it. The gospel message is plugged in to God's world. And that's why it needs to be plugged into our behaviour, plugged into our concrete and real relationships. That's why the false teachers have got it so wrong. So chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This, this false teaching comes from spirits. Spiritual teaching. And, you know, I, I bet it was probably quite exciting. And I bet it seemed far more spiritual and passion-filled and heavenly than Paul's old boring daily grind doing stuff in your daily relationships thing. This was spiritual. But it's not from the Holy Spirit, is it? Oh, it is spiritual. But it's from evil spirits, from deceiving spirits, from demons, so it's not the truth. The people who teach it have cauterised consciences. No right from wrong. They have no real knowledge of good and evil. 
What exactly do they teach? Verse 3, they, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. They reject the value of the created world. They claim things in this world, certain things in this world, are not good. They need to be avoided. Forbid marriage. What goes with it, really? Sex, attachment, family, those kinds of things. And they forbid certain foods also. <laughs> yeah, food. We, we human beings have a rich and complex relationship to food, don't we? We all know deep down that food is not just fuel for our animal metabolism. It's much more. We use food for all sorts of reasons. For fellowship, for family, for celebration. Sometimes we choose to avoid certain foods, and often that's for good reasons. But even God told his ancient people, Israel, to avoid certain foods, to be holy and distinct. You might, at times, fast or partially fast, maybe for health, maybe for discipline, maybe to mourn, to help you to focus on other good things. There's nothing wrong with any of that by itself. But we can sometimes make food into something bigger, can't we? Something much bigger. Have you noticed how in, in our modern 21st century world, the language around food is so often moral language? Have you noticed that? A language of good and evil. So sugar, fat, matters. We don't just say it's unhealthy in large quantities. No, we say it's bad. Bad food. It's a moral issue. Uh, my wife, Bron, was at the dentist uh, the other day, a few, few months ago, um, on King Street, just across the road from Fat Frank's, before Fat Frank's shut down. <laughs> uh, the dentist said to Bron, they were chatting, uh, this is before you know, stuff went into Bron's mouth so she could chat to the dentist, but the, the dentist said, oh, I had Fat Frank's for lunch, and now I hate myself. And of course, that's a joke, isn't it? But it's funny because there's a grain of truth behind it. Food in our minds often is a moral issue. And it's not always funny, is it? Because people do hate themselves, don't they? For some people, avoiding food is a tragic and awful mental illness linked to an awful distorted and destructive view of our bodies. And we need to know this, brothers and sisters. Food does not make you better or worse. God fully and completely accepts you through the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, by his grace. And what you eat has absolutely no impact on God's acceptance of you through our Lord Jesus Christ. The demons want you to think it does. The Holy Spirit tells you otherwise. It's only Jesus. This false teacher's view of food in this passage is a tragically distorted view of the whole physical creation. Escape this world and, and, and you'll be free or whatever it was. It's caught up with a denial of the goodness of other natural things like marriage, family, relationships. There's a couple I once knew well who are no longer alive. For most of their adult lives, they were followers of an esoteric spiritual movement combined Western Christianity with Eastern mysticism. And it was about insider knowledge. It was about mystical secrets. And 
It's about individual spiritual progress. So you, you, you progress through life, personal evolution and, and enlightenment. And a big part of their spirituality involved avoiding foods that were bad for you, uh, toxic for you. Toxic for you because you had to leave those foods behind. They weighed you down to practice detachment from the things of this world to progress to spiritual things. And when their young teenage daughter would ask her father, Dad, do you love me? The answer from her father was this. No, I, I need to learn to be detached. So no, I can't say that I love you. And growing up under the influence of that spiritual movement that denied the goodness of those natural human bonds had a, a deeply damaging effect on her and on her children and her grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That's demonic, isn't it? I hope that's easy for you to see. What about us? Might we do the same thing without realising it? Might, might it be possible that, that a good and right focus on God's word and spiritual things might become for you a reason to detach yourself and ignore your commitments to your relationships? Could you imagine a husband saying to his wife, I don't have time to devote to you because I'm busy studying God's word today, writing a sermon tomorrow, organising church the next day, writing an article next month. I'm doing spiritual work. I'm doing gospel work. I'm doing the glorious heavenly things that matter. And yes, of course I value you, but it's all about priorities. And the spiritual is my top priority. And one day, of course, I'll have time and energy for you. You're my second priority, but not today. Probably not the next day either. Never really. Because the first priority is always the first priority, isn't it? It's always on the top of the agenda and it never ends. I can imagine it, can't you? In fact, I've seen it. Now, don't get me wrong, it's certainly true that things in this world can lead us away from loving God. We can be so committed to our own comfort, we can be so committed to our human relationships and our family and our marriage that we never actually work hard for the sake of the gospel and never make sacrifices. That is true. We can easily be led off into a love for money. We can have ambition for earthly power. We can be more afraid of the disapproval of our parents or of our family members than of truly fearing and honouring God. That's all true. But also what we can do is use our spirituality as an excuse to be lazy and neglectful of our natural human commitments and relationships in this world. But when you become a Christian, you don't stop being a human with human relationships. And the gospel doesn't make you escape those things. It leads you to affirm those things because they're good. Paul here focuses mainly on food, verse 3, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Echoing the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 2, remember when God creates the heavens and the earth, he makes the land and the sky and he sees it and it is good. He makes food and he sees it. It is good. Everything he made is good. But it is not good for the man to be alone. So marriage is good too. This creation by God, this order out of chaos, is now the stuff of our daily lives. Food, relationships, God sees it and it is good. And the truth of the gospel does not overturn 
the goodness of creation. No, the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who saves us by his grace is the very same God who created this world and who created us. As we come to trust in Jesus Christ, to know the truth, by God's astounding grace, we see what God sees, that this world is good. And there's one basic response for us in this passage, one word twice written, thanksgiving. The word for thanksgiving, it's closely related to the word for grace. You know, grace, charis, a gift. Thanksgiving, eucharistia, returning grace for grace. That's why the prayer of thanks at meals is called saying grace, in case you didn't know. Saying grace, it's not a magic ritual, but saying grace is a terrific thing to do, isn't it? And a terrific thing to do as a practice to follow. Jesus did it. Paul and Timothy did it. Christians have done it through the ages. Why is it so good? Because every day, more than one time a day, however often, you're acknowledging God's good gift. God's word and prayer sanctifies the food. It makes the food holy. It doesn't magically change the food. It sets it apart for that godly and God-honouring purpose. It makes the food not just fuel, but a cause of thanksgiving for God's grace to us. A mean for recognising that God is the creator who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So each time we say grace, and you know, twice at college meals, how's, how good's that? Helps us to plug in, to plug us into God's truth, to strengthen our response to God's wonderful grace to us in his creation and in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just saying grace at meals, of course, is it? That thanksgiving is a bedrock Christian practice. Something to practice always, a basic habit of our lives. Because God is good, our creator. The daily grind of godliness is good. God's church is good. The relationships I'm in are good. And through it all, by the mercy of Christ, God will lead me to glory. When Jesus saves us by his grace, he doesn't just zap us out of creation. He works in and through our daily lives and relationships to bring us to glory. So just pause to think about your own spirituality, your own ministry, your study, knowledge and I just have one question for you as we finish is it definitely plugged in 